Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books Network. Uh, I am your host, Wano Yorian, a Romanian writer and translator living in Belgium. We are here today with Sophie Lewis to talk about her new book, Abolish the Family. A Manifesto for Care and Liberation, out from Verso. Hi, Sophie. How are you today? Hi, Oana. I'm doing fine. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Would you like to quickly introduce yourself, talk about some of the stuff you have written previously and your general practice? Oh, thank you. Sure. Um, so my name is Sophie Lewis. Um, I did quite a lot of time in academia. I studied English literature as an undergraduate at Oxford. Then I switched to environmental policy at the same place. Then I had a Fulbright scholarship and studied politics at the New School for Social Research in New York. And finally, I did a PhD in um, human geography with two uh, eco-Marxist supervisors who I sort of applied to be supervised by thinking I wanted to really study the production of nature and nature as an accumulation strategy, as the late, great Neil Smith called it, um, as well as the illustrious history of anti-work. So <laughs> I had very grand ambitions to think about work and nature uh, together. Um, and what ended up happening was that I looked at gestational labor, as I call it, contract pregnancy, the commercial gestational surrogacy industry, um, and also unwaged pregnancy um, during my PhD. And after that, I basically kind of slowly uh, fell out of, of formal academia um, and wrote a book, uh, Full Surrogacy Now, Feminism Against Family. That was my first book uh, with Verso Books 2019. Um, and it makes an argument um, that tries to unite these, these anti-work horizons I mentioned uh, with a kind of, ge <laughs> you know, Marxist geographical 
exploration of the actually existing um, very dystopic rather than utopian um, landscape of commercialized uh, gestating. Um, and because of the success um, the sort of unexpected uh, sort of uh, success of full surrogacy now, I have been able since then to become what I wanted to be when I was a kid, which is a writer. And I've, um, I've written essays and given sort of talks, um, you know, all over the world at this point. And my, my uh, subjects of interest are quite varied. I've, I've written for kind of infamously for N plus one, a literary magazine based in New York about octopuses and erotophobia and the erotic. I've I've written for the London Review of Books about the history of women and alcohol. I've written for Harper's magazine about Marilyn Monroe. So, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of um, uh, different topics that I turn my sort of uh, attention to but it, even in all of these areas um, I am ongoingly fascinated by what anti-work horizons mean in the very vexed question of care work uh, I would say that that's that's my sort of red thread running through everything what does anti-work in care work look like how does yeah how does uh, the redistributive or qualitative transformation um, of of that labor work, <laughs> um, but of course, yeah, but of course, I don't always, you know, write about um, uh, cultural topics. Sometimes I, I um, actually, can you edit this, Oana? Are you able to cut certain kinds of waffle no, out? To, or, uh, or not? Well, I can tell them. I can tell them to cut it. Um, I can ask the people at the New Books Network to edit it, maybe. But what do you want to edit it out? Oh, I see. I'm sorry. Just that last. I just realized I should have shut up the last few seconds. You know, I should have. I should have. Uh, when you opened your mouth to follow up, I should have just shut up. <laughs> no, no, no. Go ahead. I love listening to you. And as a side note to our our uh, listeners, that octopus essay that she mentioned is just amazing. <laughs> I really, really loved it. But um, before we start, so now you ended up with family abolitionism, with, which is also actually anti-work politics, let's put it that way. But before we start on it, can you tell me about the book's dedication to the West Philadelphia Cemetery Commune? Because it really drew oh. my attention. Oh, the dedication. No one's asked me about that. Gosh, yeah, well... Um, to be honest, uh, that refers to the uh, combination of sort of visa wedding and collective, uh, you know, omnidirectional uh, marriage uh, ceremony that my partner and I had with many, many of our comrades, um, where um, the ritual practice was a surprise to all of us. It was it was uh, directed by one of our closest loved ones. And, uh, you know, she invited everyone who felt interested in participating in that to sort of get married to everybody else <laughs> uh, around around the two of us. So it was a kind of, you know, I, we don't imagine that we escaped um 
the relationship with the state that is marriage. Um, however, to the extent that we were able to throw a party, which is the nice part of uh, of marriage, <laughs> we we made it um, a sort of participatory ritual that we didn't really control very much in advance. Um, and everybody ended up sort of quote unquote, you know, marrying themselves to everyone else. <laughs> That's nice. What the, yeah. Nice. That's what the dedication is. Um, so on that note, let's start, uh, let's start with your, with the rest of the book. Uh, let's talk about how we, the left are trying to take grandma away <laughs> and, uh, what you call the scariness in all real revolutionary politics. Yes, yes, thanks. That's such a great way of phrasing the question, Awana. I mean, yeah, I write in my little manifesto, Abolish the Family, that um, I simultaneously want to address, take seriously and respect, but also... Um, you know, not shy away from, you know, I want to assuage, but also to simply recognize the scariness of any sort of um, serious commitment to the communization of social relations and of the world, especially of care. Because, you know, if, if uh, we want the world to change utterly, you know, for me, communism um, with a small C, uh, very close to what Ruthie Wilson Gilmore calls abolition. In fact, I think she says as much, right? The ruthless sort of criticism of everything existing goes to, you know, is part of the real movement that abolishes the present state of things. Um, we, we have to be willing to understand that that includes us, that includes our very subjectivities, our consciousness, our identities, our sense of self, the way we are manufactured um, as, you know, quote unquote individuals um, is currently the family. And so, you know, asking people to think critically about that anthrogenetic process, anthrogenesis is, is the word I'm currently thinking about to simply mean the, you know, the production of human beings, human bodies um you know w w yeah we 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 have to be able to at least suspend that discomfort and that fear i think recognizing that well according to kathy weeks the anti-work philosopher and feminist who has written very uh generatively about the history of family abolition and feminism recently in the journal feminist theory we may not currently be fully able to let alone desire the post-familial, uh, post-capitalist future. Um, it, we may not even be able to fully desire it in the present, and yet we can orient ourselves towards it. Uh, it's a long, long road. <laughs> um, the radical poet Diane de Prima talks about, you know, in one of her poems in the Revolutionary Letters, she talks about picking up the, the work, you know, someone else will finish. That's the kind of, um, you know, not necessarily melancholic kind of long haul that we're talking about if we want to be serious about transforming not just the, you know, the traditional factory that Marx uh, revealed 
as the hidden abode of production, but also what Geordie Rosenberg calls the hiddener abode, the social factory, um, the, the family, right? The naturalized, invisibilized workplace that is, you know, very much a part of the cycle of capital accumulation and which also needs to be revolutionized. Um, but with, you know, even on the left, we're very uh, protective um, of the naturalness, uh, you know, the supposed naturalness of that sphere. And so when you ask, you know, uh, why the left is taking grandma away, uh, you know, unfortunately for several decades, um, it hasn't, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm joking. No one's grandma should be taken away. Uh, family, you know, abolition is not about the separation of people. On the contrary, it is about the possibility of being together, being being joined um, together for the first time in history, I would say. But, you know, the, the, the horizon and the language um, and the demand of abolition of the family was present um, during the Red Decade, the long 60s. Um, and it was also known, you know, at in the era of the sort of left Bolshevik, you know, the, the left-wing dissident wing of the Bolsheviks kind of attention to this, Alexandra Kolontai and so on, and the people to the left of the Bolsheviks at the time also. Um, and then, you know, you could, you could even go back um, a century before that and think about the utopian socialism of Charles Fourier, which inspired Marx and Engels in the Communist Manifesto to talk about abolition of the family, the supposed like infamous proposal of the communists. But, you know, when you ask me whether today um, the left is mounting that kind of threat, you know, <laughs> to subjectivity, to people's sort of um, comfort zones, I would say, um, unfortunately, no. Um, no, it, it, the imagination has successfully been shrunk, I think, by the 80s, um, you know, stomping of the new left into the dust, right? Um, and to some extent, it's never quite come back. It's never quite uh, recovered, I would say, from that defeat. Yes, so I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to you on that later on. But first, I would like to go on with two with two quotes from your book, which really resonated with me. One, family values are bourgeois economics read small and relate to that, that the family is a miserable way to organize care. And tell me more, why do you think the nuclear capitalist family is doing a bad job at care? I'm particularly interested as a, as a parent. You also say that parenthood is an absurdly unfair distribution of labor and of power. And I totally agree with that because I struggle with both these aspects I catch myself facilitating my children's accommodation to capitalism, as you say, even as I try to help them dream utopically. Yes, yes, that's so well put. The um, the innovation that you know certain um, dissident Marxist feminists made in the early seventies with this category of social reproduction and its politics, you know. Um, it's it's often been kind of misunderstood by some um, in academia and theory as um, 
a matter of praise, right? Social reproductive labor um, is crucial to the reproduction of capitalism. It's crucial to the survival of capitalist society. And, you know, that's not praise. That is not moral praise. Um, reproducing the world as it is, uh, is is nothing to be super proud of. <laughs> Kathy Weeks's anti-work kind of diagnosis is so important here. We are unable to hear something that identifies labor as labor as anything other than moral praise, you know. As um and and yet that that was not the point. <laughs> the point was to I make something visible in order to be able to abolish it. When you talk about sort of accommodating your children to capitalism, naturalizing capitalism for them, that's that's something that you have very little choice but to do, right? Very little choice. In fact, maybe no real choice but to do. Um, and there's this duality, right? You're in all social reproduction, we're reproducing the world as it is and reproducing you know, people who are not entirely within capitalism. We're reproducing comrades and we're reproducing workers at, at the same time. Um, and that that complexity, you know, is, is what we have to grasp, right? It's a nettle we have to grasp politically. And we have to be able to move as a left beyond the ongoing reluctance to think about uh you know, revolutionizing that intimate sphere um, and and taking it seriously, perhaps prioritizing it really, um, uh, in a sense. The family is doing a bad job at care um, in the sense of, you know, flourishing among human beings, right? It's not doing such a terrible job <laughs> in terms of caring for the needs of the market and the state. That's, you know, that's one sort of specification you have to give, right? It's an unbelievably um, bananas, <laughs> to use a technical term, distribution of responsibility, power and labor. It maximizes labor for us in a way um, while giving, you know, maximum profit and benefit um, to our bosses, um, you know, and and our governments who need to administer us uh, <laughs> tidily <laughs> Not, and surveil us to an extent in these administrative units that we've created, the private nuclear household. Um, that there's great profit to be generated from the isolation of people within private nuclear households. Um, and there are all kinds of dimensions to that. Um, some of the most obvious ones are just the multiplication of, you know, commodities and consumer needs. The, the, you know, the fact that every household has a laundry, every household, you know, has a kitchen and so on. Um, in the past, um, you know, there were even moments of uh, social democratic state realization that this is, you know, totally un you know, unlogical, illogical. Um, the UK government stated officially during World War II that um, private production of food, you know, for private consumption is not just nutritionally non-optimal, um, but sort of economically <laughs> and socially irrational. And so, you know, you, you have these moments where 
the the you know the illogic of the private nuclear household kind of peeks through even because of the war, right? The wartime suspension of, you know, capitalist business as usual to an extent. Um, so these huge dining halls and canteens were kind of rolled out to give millions of people the experience of, you know, fine communal dining, you know, three times a day which really changes people's subjectivity and their sense of what their needs are. And I wanted to kind of, you know, offer you this sense of needs as one of the, um, the central rubrics for family abolitionist struggle, um, enlarging our sphere of needs um, as the practical task <laughs> Um, the welfare rights militants of the U.S. in the 80s uh, used this language. They talked about growing rich in needs. And I think it's a useful way of sort of helping people think about what might be at stake. Currently, we direct our needs towards the private realm almost exclusively to be met, right? Whether it's, you know, um, emotional needs or physical needs, um, spiritual needs, you know, needs for therapeutic care and so on. We, we, we direct our needs into private arenas, right? Often commodified because a large proportion of social reproductive labor has been commodified under neo neoliberalism, right? The family nevertheless persists as Melinda Cooper has so aptly sort of laid out in her book, Family Values, which is about how neoliberalism and neoconservatism um, basically hold hands um, in, re in, in reproducing and relying on the family, which is not nearly dead enough, despite the story being that it's on the threat of collapse, you know, and that's been the story for literally millennia. <laughs> Something about the family is always on the brink of collapse discursively. That's part of its functioning as a technology um, as a sort of material, um, ideological, and juridical technology for the ordering of populations. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> I, might, I might have lost my thread a little bit there, Oana. <laughs> Too many. No, no, that's great. Issues. That's great. I think you you touched on the on the main points. Uh, but to get back to let's say abolitionist politics, you you also explain in the book why merely calling for an expanded family or a reformed family, which might be more palatable for some rather than straight away to abolish, uh, is not enough. Could you could you sum up that argument for us? Yeah, well, okay. It makes no sense to call for the expansion of organized scarcity. If you recognize that, you know, the family, which I define as the form that the privatization of care takes in a class society, you know, i.e. The, the societies we've known up till now. <laughs> um, you know, the, the, it makes no sense to talk about, you know, expanding or reforming that. You have to abolish it. I'm interested in the specificity of the term abolish. It's not designed to upset people. Um, abolish is a very, you know, special word because of its simultaneous meanings of transformation, destruction, you know, and realization. Of course, there is a destructive element there. I think we have to be able to face that, the, the negation that is necessary of the sorts of, you know, sentimental um, and material priority um, 
the ideological cult, you know, of familism, the, 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 the notion that, you know, genetics is real, right? That we really do, in fact, reproduce ourselves um, and that we gain immortality, not to mention sort of property in our children. These are, these are fantasies that we need to be able to, you know, negate and criticize, I think. And there is a destructive element. But the, the transformative element of abolition and paradoxically the realization of the promise of you know, the, 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 the dystopic present. That's what I want to talk about in a sense. You know, when you talk about prison abolition, which, you know, thanks to the uprisings of recent years has become, you know, a, a very well-known common sense topic, you know, miraculously enough, um, it's not sufficiently, you know, talked about um, because, you know, abolition is quite a, in a sense, you know, quite a scholarly term of art, right? But, you know, in a sense, people are talking about it at the same time. They're recognizing that the promise of the, you know, criminal justice system, justice, is a travesty in the present, right? And if you burn down all the prisons today, which is not, you know, not something that I, um, I think would be a bad idea necessarily, but it would not be prison abolition. We would not have abolished the criminal justice system by doing that, you know, or by disarming every every cop or whatever. Abolition is the process of building the thing that was being travestied. So justice. It's actually not about beginning in those buildings. Um, It's actually about beginning everywhere else such that you know the the current forms wither away and become unthinkable the same goes for the family right i don't suggest this is my little joke don't try this at home kids you know family abolition is not something you go home and you know try and you know transform you know relationships for <laughs> in the in the in the currently existing private nuclear households of the 21st century right no it's actually in a sense probably going to end up sounding quite bread and butter you know like <laughs> uh you know social justice um struggles and um you know left movements right we anything that directs our needs into the common sphere anything that provides for people infrastructures of nurturance, um, whether it's, you know, food, whether it's uh, forms of, you know, education or therapy or healthcare, uh, you know, free transit, the right to the city, stuff that um, meets people's needs um, outside of the private sphere. That's that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the the path. And 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 so <laughs> whether people want to hear it or not, and whether it's a good thing or not in their minds, a lot of actually existing campaigns and mutual aid networks and movements are already <laughs> sort of you know abolishing the family by making it possible to have people's needs met um, outside of their families. And um, but but I would yeah that's what I'm sort of saying um, about the need to think about abolition rather than expansion or reform because you know 
it, okay, the, the the tricky thing is, of course, the family has many different meanings. I, I insist, you know, on defining it, which is quite valid and, and certainly has a lot of precedent, right, in, in academia, but it's the form that the privatization of care takes currently under capitalism. Um, and and uh, it's not a synonym, you know, of, you know, kinship practices. Um, however, <laughs> we can talk a little bit more about how I think that the language and metaphor of kin uh, kin making and kinship ultimately, you know, has too strong ties to the family as a property form to be particularly useful, I think, for truly liberatory politics. But I'm not, you know, I'm obviously not suggesting that, um, well, I hope it's obvious, I think it is, you know, that, that I'm not suggesting that the sort of relationships that people have that they might use familial language to think about are somehow, you know, um, wrong or bad I don't I cannot stress enough you know the family is a sort of shield that people take up you know to survive a war and you know they don't we don't really have a choice (laughs) to be honest um especially racialized marginalized colonized people you know who had the family imposed on them via for example the freedmen's bureau you know uh in the United States, imposed, you know, marriage um, uh, on the descendants of captive peoples once after emancipation, um, or you know, the Bureau of Indian Affairs um, imposed, you know, male-headed patriarchal uh, property-owning household forms on, you know, the 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 indigenous people of um, North America, um, and in the wake of that, right. There is a particularly, you know, acute sort of uh, desirability for family abolition, a proximity to it, a deserving of it, and a long history, in a sense, of resistance to the imposition of family, right? But there's also, you know, a particularly acute sort of um, forced attachment to it for survival, the family is truly the only thing that people have got going on um, for the purposes of survival in the present. That's what makes it such a visceral, painful sort of thing to talk about trying to, you know, unseat, you know, to almost like rip it out <laughs> from our very bodies, you know, is a truly, truly terrifying, you know, um, philosophical and 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 political proposition. Um, and I, I think, you know, I, I think I'm attentive enough to that. Um, although it's never going to be, it's never going to be easy. Who knows? <laughs> you have a very um, helpful section in the book um, that sort of reviews practical attempts at abolishing the family from structurally queer living to state policy. You talk about uh, black non-nuclear kinning and polymaternalism. We have had the genotel, you've already mentioned Alexandra Kolontai, also one of my favorite revolutionaries. Uh, we've had wages for housework and against house- housework. And I don't know if you're following at all. Uh, more recently, we have the new Cuban family code, which seems to expand the family or what the family means. But yeah. it's definitely, yes, you 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 want to comment on that? I'm, I'm wondering if, if this can come from above or it's it's sort of the, the kind of politics that has to come from below before we can actually yes, achieve? Yes, I think that's a great question. I, 
I think we should touch on it briefly. I'd love to hear your thoughts too, Oana, on the Cuban family code. It seems to me that, you know, my argument um, is for an abolition um, process from below. Um, However, you know, there are conditions of possibility that are more and less favorable, right, for the sorts of communization of care, you know, that that we're that we're interested in. I think the Cuban Cuban Family Code struck me personally as a a, a very desirable step, um, and I was interested in the processes that were quite, um, you know, democratic. The referenda that kind of uh, generated it and seemed to channel people's real desires <laughs> for the way they wanted to live and relate and be recognized, um, you know, in, by the state, <laughs> um, you know, so, so, so I felt that it probably helps produce, you know, not just appetite, but um, material, you know, conditions of possibility for more radical practices and processes it perhaps educates people's desire um you know to be asked you know even in a top-down manner you know how how do you think people should relate to one another um as tiffany latabo king keeps reminding us you know there are other ways of naming ourselves as relations and perhaps the kind of um rather unusual opportunity of being asked yeah let's remake let's remake this. What do you want, you know, <laughs> as a population can help spark the kind of process of, of really, um, you know, utopically um, continuing and expanding that sphere uh, of, de- of need and desire. But did you, I, I'm not the expert on how it's all been um, playing out. D- did you have anything to add yourself? I'm not an expert either, but I agree with what you with what your first impression is, and especially in the context of what's been going on in Chile, where they also try to sort of uh, move towards less um, conservative ways of understanding family existence and so on, where it failed for reasons that don't have that much to do with the policy but rather with the particular dynamics over there it was it was it was great to see what uh, what what was going on in cuba and i'm excited to 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 keep an eye on that and to see where it's going and how it how it unfolds and on that note i also loved the the section at the end of the book uh, an amazing section about what abolishing the family will actually look like and I will quote you again because I love this quote. Uh, if we hold hands, we can certainly be brave enough to step into the abundance that will be the nothingness that comes after the family. Um, maybe you want to expand on that and also on, because you mentioned vocabulary, on kin, kith and comradeliness. Yeah. Well, um, I, I borrow this directly really as an answer to the question, you know, what will come after the family? <laughs> Um, because that's really what people want to know. Um, from the Marxist socialists, uh, Mary McIntosh and Michelle uh, Barrett, um, who in the darkness of Thatcherism, you know, wrote this very elegant theoretical and political statement on family abolition called The Anti-Social Family. And it was published by Verso as well. Um, so I always imagine Margaret Thatcher, you know, uh, 
triumphantly sort of, you know, extending her deeply familist um, form of capitalism, you know, over the land and saying, um, not really incorrectly, you know, there is no such thing as society. Um, there are individual men and women and there are families, right? Her, fam- her famous quote. And um, I always think of Michelle Barrett and Mary McIntosh kind of answering, well, yeah, the reason why the first part is true, you know, that the social has been destroyed, you know, by capitalism is the the last part, <laughs> the family. It, it's a technology for destroying sociality. I think it's a very elegant kind of argument. Um, so they're saying that the social is really what we build um, when we turn away from the family, ultimately. <laughs> um, and it is, you know, the family that is kind of sucking up our understandings of of how things how needs can be met by being associated with all good things you know nice things to eat mother love um belonging you know the pleasures of you know um identity formation collectively like ethnic tradition you know all sorts of pleasures and things that people associate and develop purely within the the realm of of, of kinship um and so yeah they 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 say um that people were always asking them you know what could possibly come after the family and they insist on saying nothing you know you you don't replace something you know that steals us away from each other you don't replace that <laughs> um and i think it's it's a lovely answer and so I basically reproduce it and say um it's the nothingness outside of the family that we need to start understanding as abundant you know it is a very difficult thing to trust you know emotionally but it is what we must learn to trust and what we must develop conditions of possibility for trusting for being able to rely upon because actually you know this comes down to trust in labor funnily right the the forms that family gives are forms of sort of state and juridical um and ideological sort of biologized sanction that make us imagine that the ties that we have with one another are unbreakable um, except by God or perhaps, you know, some lengthy administrative process uh, with the state where, you know, like a, a child breaking up with their parents is called emancipation, right? Um, you know, or, or we can get divorces more classically, you know. But but the, the idea is that um, a, a tie of family creates a space that even the state cannot penetrate. That's a very alluring fantasy, uh, and it's a great offer to people, right? That a person's home, um, a man's, you know, safest refuge, <laughs> a home, his home is his castle. This is a juridical principle that was invented, you know, I think in the 15th or 14th centuries in the UK, I can't remember. Um, and it kind of informs settler colonialism, this idea that, you know, um, if someone comes onto your private familial property you know trespassing you are absolutely morally sanctioned to 
commit any kind of violence against them um, in the name of your kids, in the name of your wife. This is a, a sacred form of violence, you know, that comes with the family. In fact, it's what it's one of the ways in which the family is a state institution, not just a a market servicing cell. It's the way in which, as you know, the property owner of that space in fantasy, you are an emissary of the state. You have the, you know, the uh, the control over the legitimate means or the legitimate use of, of violence. Um, and so you'll find in all kinds of really strange places, people's kind of recognition of this poking through, you know, unconsciously. Like the, the liberal feminist philosopher Kate Mann talks at the end of her book, Entitled, about her you know, willingness to kill for her daughter. And she immediately says she realizes she's not, you know, she's not actually entitled to do that. But it's such a strange thing. I think it's part of the the payoff that we get out of parenthood in capitalist society. It is genuinely a form of, you know, consolation. <laughs> you get to be a tiny little bit of the state. Um, and if anyone, you know, crosses your threshold um, uninvited, you know, th- th- that... That state-sanctioned violence is actually, um, you know, yours, you know, to to, to determine um, and to meet out if necessary. But of course, you know, this whole setup, this invitation, this promise about the family is a lie, isn't it? It's never been actually <laughs> available to proletarian families, racialized families, black and, you know, immigrant, you know, indigenous families. The state does penetrate those boundaries all the time, you know, the monstrosities of the child protective services, um, you know, apparatuses, the very long and blood-stained history of state child removal, you know, the the settler colonial stealing of children, the ongoing, you know, process of, uh, of separating um, people from one another forcibly at the border, um, you know, and the the general sort of surveillance and policing um, and transgression of those thresholds, you know, of, uh, in particular in the US, black intramural life ha- has meant that for some, the, the phrase black family in the context of the United States is an oxymoron, right? There is no black family in the eyes of the state. It, it has never respected that that boundary right um and so in that sense you know those who have the most need in a sense who are clinging sometimes for survival sometimes recognizing however that you know there never was anything in the family for them you know that there there has been um you know sorry excuse me i lost my train um that (laughs) that there's yeah there's been a recognition that you know I think it's a phrase from the abolitionist sort of um anti-police anti-prisons movement you know there's no justice there is just us um it sounds like a sort of scary thing but the the sooner we realize in, in a sense that you know nothing not the family not the state nothing is coming to rescue us or 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 validate us or sanction us or or catch us you know perhaps the better um because it is in fact labor every day that that creates relationships right kinship is always made not given um 
And it is our fantasy that we will be automatically cared for because of some kind of legal or biogenetic reality that is non-contingent, that undergirds that, um, that, that we need to be able to, I think, suspend, put to one side. You know, guess what? <laughs> you, you know, the, the most, you know, formal, official ties are nevertheless actually only given shape through a, a decision every day, you know, um, to, to enact them via labor. And so, you know, it, we're already as precarious as we could possibly be, <laughs> which is the good and bad news. And so that's what I mean about stepping forward into that scariness together, holding hands and recognizing that, you know, that it is, you know, our, our labors that creates relationships. Um, even if we make containers for some of those, uh, you know, and we, I'm not saying that we might not, you know, decide to make forms of belonging and name them, you know, um, and, and I'm certainly not against somehow the intimate sphere, right? <laughs> um, uh, but, but, I, but I think what is needed, especially, you know, in the, in the transition <laughs> is an, a, a, an especially strong emphasis on the fact that, you know, it's, it's us making these forms every day, not some sort of story about blood or seed or gene um, or marriage or what have you. Right. Um, you mentioned earlier in the interview that you're not very optimistic about the present family abolitionism moment. Uh, and I was just, I was curious to know, because you're just back from your European book tour, I think. You, you, were, you were in Europe to promote the book. And uh, you, you mentioned in your book that while for a while it was the central demand, <clears throat> excuse me, of women's liberation, it was first defeated and actively erased. But you say in the book, now we are again in a moment of abolition fervor. Should I understand that this extends to the family as well, or it's, or do you refer to other types of abolitionism, like police and prison abolitionism is, is clearly um, uh, catching on in Europe as well. But I'm curious if you have something helpful to say about what you noticed among the comrades in Europe. Oh, yeah, I was, I was astonished and humbled and delighted at how much, you know, there was clearly conversation going on um not just about my work but you know also reading my work but but just extending it um applying it developing it around abolition of the family um I would say that in the U.S. there was perhaps a moment when I was writing the manifesto <laughs> where I thought that people were extremely um amenable you know to the recognition that um you know, the, the private sphere would have to be, you know, transformed along with the criminal justice uh, complex and so on. Because, frankly, of COVID and the the highlighting of the crisis of care that the pandemic, you know, affected. Um, but I do think that there's been, at least in the US, a bit of a kind of reversal of that and a sense that people want to go back to quote unquote normal um, I have no idea whether that once again will will be shaken off you know hopefully any minute now <laughs> but um, yeah I, I think I'm a little bit less optimistic about um, 
you know, the creativity and experimental courage that people, um, you know, on a mass level seem to be manifesting around familism. But uh, when I said abolition fervor, I think I, I I was I was imagining that the yeah the police and prison applications might spread right. There are fascinating conversations happening um, among those who study the you know abolition of um, family policing, um, Dorothy Roberts, Dean Spade, and so on, um, and how that goes hand in hand potentially with you know abolition of the family right. Um, these are the sorts of dialectic complexity that we need to be getting very good <laughs> at holding in our minds. You know, you can, you know, defend people who happen to be in families against brutalities and atrocities like the family policing, you know, edifice, and at the same time denaturalize the family. <laughs> in fact, we can and must, and maybe latently people are already in a sense, doing that. You can defend a queer kid inside a migrant family against her relatives who may or may not be, you know, if if they are, you know, brutalizing her if she needs to escape, you know, and you can at the same time defend all of those people, that family, against brutalization by the state, right? These are not impossible things. Um, we do not have to march under banners that naturalize, you know, the sanctity of family. We don't have to, I think, you know, proclaim that families, quote unquote, belong together and that the thing that we want to stop is family separation. I'm not, you know, I have marched under those banners, you know, like any decent person, you know, to protest the 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 violence of the border apparatus in the you know in the United States, but um, I think really it's quite easy to make that switch. People recognize that what they actually mean is you know stop the brutalization of people or perhaps even you know um, disarm the border you know abolish the border you know um, stop separating human beings stop um, you know. Uh, preventing people who want to be together from being together. Um, the the whole language and idiom of family is supposed to be a, 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 res- a respectable lever, I think, a reproach to the system of power that supposedly welcomes and respects um, legitimate, quote unquote, you know, families um, once they present themselves. Um, the fantasy is that once admitted, they will be, you know, afforded all of the sort of wages of uh, familiarity that America offers <laughs> to, to families. But this just, you know, this this isn't how it works, right? Um, and that veil can quite readily and easily be pierced, um, in my opinion. Um, Thank you. Thank you. I think we've, we've, taken up already a lot of your time. Um, but before we, we finish, I would like to know what you're working on now. I, I think you've recently announced that you're, you're starting work on a new book. Yes. Um, yes, I'm writing a book that is tentatively, well, it's either going to be called <laughs> Bad Feminisms or Enemy Feminisms or potentially The Feminism of Fools, How Some <laughs> Feminisms Hinder 
feminist liberation. And the phrase, you know, feminism of fools is um, a reference to the phrase socialism of fools, which is, you know, um, uh, an analysis that I find very useful about the truncation of anti-capitalist critique. So what people meant when they said that was in the 19th century was that people have a little bit of an inkling about capitalism and they take a wrong turn and start talking about Jews. <laughs> so this is the socialism of fools where you end up on the wrong side of history. You become an enemy for having you know, become familiar with a couple of concepts of radical or structural analysis. So truncated anti-capitalist critique is more dangerous, is a becomes fascism because so the socialism of fools is anti-Semitism. My analogy, um, and it is gonna, you know, be an imperfect metaphor, but the feminism of fools is where people end up in very carceral, potentially, you know, um, violently annihilationist anti-trans sorts of positions um historically also eugenic positions uh nationalist imperialist sorts of positions um having you know realized often in quite sort of fervent uh ways that something is wrong with regard to sex and gender on this on this planet which it is you know um but i want to make an intervention where i look at i'm thinking six different archetypes um that's my plan currently but i keep adding more chapters um where i explore the history of feminism as in an almost like warts only way um i do think that there's been a proliferation of books recently about um the failures of quote unquote white feminism, right? It's become extremely, you know, I almost want to say fashionable um, to denounce and to criticize um, white feminism. And I think a lot of those books are useful. Um, some of them perhaps a bit less so, some of them excellent. Um, but I also think actually there is maybe more to say. Um, there's actually more to say than um identifying and denouncing white feminism because in fact it's not just um the whiteness although the whiteness comes up in all I think of the bad feminisms that I'm looking at um it's also not a question for me of um denouncing and disavowing um for the sake of a purification of feminism rather I want to clarify the terrain so that instead of, as I did as a teenager, constantly assuming that, you know, the feminisms that we see that are reactionary are somehow, quote unquote, not real feminisms. You know, that's a that's a very tempting move. I've made it a lot of times myself. A lot of people like to say this, you know, TERFs are not real feminists, or, you know, that's not real feminism. Um, in fact, this isn't working out. This isn't getting us very far. I think uh, uh, I'm hoping to contribute something that makes it really clear that the history of feminism is so capacious as to contain within itself its own enemies. And there really are enemy feminisms, which is not to say that there are probably any totally, quote unquote, un unproblematic, you know, um, angelic feminisms or something. But I do think that 
some level of confusion could be averted by identifying the ones that are actually in and of themselves anti-liberatory. So I have a chapter on the femo-nationalist, a chapter on the white slave, (laughs) um, a chapter on the adult human female, um, a chapter on um, the um, hetero-pessimist, actually, um, although I think that might be less enemy than um, (laughs) sort of, uh, you know, mistake. (laughs) Um, I've got one on the dirt bag. um, And of course, I've got one on the girl boss, who in some senses is a bit of a, you know, a dated figure at this point. Although I think I want to argue less so than we might, than we might wish. (laughs) Um, and, and, And I want to also articulate a kind of critical utopianist feminism in the tradition of feminism against cisness, which my um, you know, my friend and comrade and, you know, the extremely brilliant Emma Heaney um, talks about, this is her phrase, feminism against cisness, and an anthology is forthcoming soon with Duke um, under that title. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that in every chapter, I manage to, you know, convey the struggles that are also, you know, doing this same terrain completely differently. So when it was so I'm going to be speaking about feminists against cisness in my chapter on adult human females. Um, you know, and I'm going to be talking about anti-imperialist feminist struggles in my chapter about femo nationalists and so on. Thank you for asking. Yeah. Thank you, Sophie, for taking the time to talk to me today. And to our listeners, do get Sophie's book out now from Verso, as well as her previous as well as her previous book, Full Surrogacy Now, soon also available in Romanian in my translation from Fractalia. And also make sure to look for everything Sophie writes, because in the tradition of great communist writing, her sentences are also a complete delight. I am Wana Oyoran, and I wish you a great day. Bye-bye. <laughs>